Welcome to Weird Era. Today we're talking to two authors for the very first time. In fact, one of the authors has previously been on Weird Era for our very first French episode for the original publication of the book in French. Poet and literary translator Daphne Bay lives and works in Montreal. She published Blutiful in 2015, uh, then Delete in 2017, in addition to writing in numerous magazines, Nouveau Projet, Liberté, Vice, Zinc, Essuaire, etc., She co-founded the feminist platform Femicile and is a regular contributor to the radio show Plus On est des Fous, Plus On Lit on Radio Canada. Made Up was published in French, Maquillé in 2020. Alex Manley is a Montreal Jojake writer and editor whose work has been published by Maisonneuve Magazine, Hazlitt, The Walrus, Grain, Vallum, and the Literary Review of Canada, among others. Their debut poetry collection, We Are All Just Animals and Plants, was published by Metatron Press in 2016. A nonfiction book about masculinity is forthcoming from ECW Press in 2023. In Made Up, we follow Daphne as she obsessively watches YouTube makeup tutorials and haunts Sephora's website. She's increasingly troubled by the ways in which this obsession contradicts her anti-capitalist intersectional feminist politics. In a looks-obsessed selfie-covered time in which influencers make the world go round, she brings us a breath of fresh air, an anti-capitalist look at a supremely capitalist industry, an intersectional feminist look at a practice many consider misogynistic. Blending together the confessional, the poetic, and the essayistic made-up is a lyrical meditation on an industry in full bloom. The original French-language edition was a cult hit in Quebec. Translated by Alex Manley, like Daphne, a Montreal poet and essayist, the book's English-language text crackles with life, retaining the flair and verve of the original, and ensures that a book on beauty is no less beautiful than its subject matter. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. I guess I want to start off uh, by acknowledging, you know, as as mentioned, we had Daphne on Weird Era to conclude our previous season with our francophone bookseller, Daphne Antil. Shortly before that was booked, I heard news of an English translation and development. And while I personally know this anecdotally, I wonder if you could explain to listeners how this partnership came to be, how you two sort of joined in on this project together. Yeah, so I had read Delete um, a few years ago, and I really liked it. And I knew Daphne sort of personally through the Montreal scene. And uh, I'd seen on her Instagram that she had this new book coming up. And, you know, I was getting I was getting sort of part of the I was getting into the hype. I was like, Oh, this sounds good. Um, And I picked up a copy. And I went to this she had a little sort of little mini launch sort of distance park hang in, in Jari, um, in September, 2020. And, uh, so I picked up a copy and I biked over there and I was going to get her to sign it. And, uh, I just started reading it like in the park and I was just totally like blown away. Like from the very first few pages, I was like, Oh, this is so good. Um, it was unlike anything I'd really read in French before, which, you know, partly that's on me for not reading more French language books. But, you know, it was just like it was such a rush. And I remember just even sitting there on a park bench in, in Park Jari, just thinking, like, I want 
you know, I, I want there to be an English translation of this because this is so good. Um, and at some point, uh, not long after that, um, a few days later, I just started kind of producing, <laughs> producing that translation. I, I decided I would try to translate the first few pages, uh, and see if I could get that published. I didn't have a lot of translation experience. I'd done some here and there for kicks, uh, and my mom's a translator, so it's sort of in the family, but it wasn't something that I'd ever really, you know, given a real try, uh, before. And I found myself really enjoying the process and, uh, in trying to get it published, uh, which ended up happening, uh, I, I got that excerpt published, um, a few months later with Carte Blanche. But, you know, when I first submitted it, I reached out to Daphne and I said, you know, will you give me permission to, to try to publish this? And she read over it and, Apparently she liked it. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed it. And as a translator myself, I could tell it was like a wonderful translation uh, with a lot of uh, rhythm and life, which is very rare um, in, in literary translation. I think Alex has a gift. <laughs> so when the book was meant to be published in English and translated, I really... Uh, wanted Alex to be my translator. I, I, I'm interested in what interests you both in translation itself. Like, what excites you about the work of translation? And with Alex in particular, I know you've been producing, like, English-based, you know, you've been writing professionally in the English language for quite some time now. And this this is kind of new, right, to, to, to join into this field of French and English translation. And Daphne, I know you've actually been doing translation for some time, but similarly, what, what excites you about it, both of you? I think for me, in, in the few times that I've translated, um, it's just been really kind of recognizing uh, something powerful and beautiful in a text, you know, in another language that you want to just kind of share uh, in, in, you know, You're like, you know, oh, this is this is so good. And I don't know, like it, it's almost I mean, it's sort of an egotistical project because you're like, I want to be the person who, who does this. But it's almost an egoless project because you're like, I want to be a kind of conduit for this to be shared with with readers, um, you know, and I you're just like, oh, there's 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 there's. there's so many people who could have the same experience of beauty with this text, but who don't speak this language or who don't read this language. And I want to, to help give that to them. There's, um, there's a lot of translation in the French, like original version of Maquillé, because it's a, something I like to do in my books. So I bring everything I read into my book and I kind of like eat it as if I was like, um, you know, an organism that needs to eat to stay alive. And I, so it goes inside my body, like the words of other, and I kind of like poop it. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, yeah, this is how I see translation. It's like um, whenever we read, right, we're like um, feeding on each other's, you know, words or whatever, and it transforms us. And it's literally like eating. So we absorb nutrients and, and then we transform the food we eat. So there's a whole process of transformation. And in the, um, in the quotes that I translate in Maquillé, I especially like 
found some poets or writers that were never translated, especially in Quebec. So I translated them with like a Quebecois slang tone kind of, which is something that I think will kind of never happen because of the politics of translation and the fact that like there's not a lot of, um, you know, Quebecois translators that are translating American literature because of the way um, the literary um, translation network works and the founding the money. Uh, so basically, uh, in Canada, we get money to translate books uh, only if it's Canadian books. I mean, it's it's special because, you know, in for, for me, like as a Francophone translator, my relationship to translation is also because I was very drenched in American or Anglophone literature, uh, being a bookseller at John and Quarterly for a long time. And I, the only way you can access this literature in French in my mother tongue is by reading translation from France. And, and the tone and the, you know, the reference are not the same at all. Uh, they're, they're like, you know, from another continent. Um, on page 57, Alex, could you read um, the second paragraph uh, in my copy, the advanced copy at the very least? It's page 57. An influencer's persuasiveness depends on the feeling of proximity and intimacy they're able to develop with their followers. It's an easy accessibility. They're forever just a tweet away, just a like away. In willing themselves closer to us, they've abolished the once seemingly impenetrable wall between stars and their fans. In French, the word for close, proche, is etymologically linked to the word for next, prochain. As if the next person to speak about lipstick in front of a camera might be me. When I watch these YouTube videos, in some sense, I'm dreaming up a future for myself. Thank you. So there's a choice being made here, right, to preserve the word plush and plushé, lyricism that needs to be maintained in the original text. And that paragraph is just one example of many that happens throughout this translation, but I wanted listeners to get a sense of what I mean. In fact, at the end of the book, I spotted the word mendacity. And I'm wondering what the thought process was in translating that from French so, you know, I'm wondering ultimately how you, Alex, determine what in the language must be kept and what ought to be translated, because there's clearly a process of selection happening here. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, in this, I thought, you know, I could have done next and next to, for instance, you know, because because we we have a similar kind of setup in English. But the fact that it's two different words may, meant that it was just a little bit less neat, I thought. And I, I liked the, the kind of educating around the etymology because Daphne goes into etymological stuff a bunch of times in other languages uh, over the course of the book. And so I wanted to keep something of that kind of interest of hers uh, in, in kind of looking at sort of, I don't know, the way words can kind of morph into each other um, I don't know. That's something that I, I personally think is really fascinating. I'm a huge fan of uh, etymology um, and the relationship between etymology and translation. And so in that example, there was definitely a little bit of that going on. And I think at, at other times in the book, you're right. Like there are there are word choices sometimes where I'm thinking about sort of the relationship between French and English and the way certain sort of uh, words are, are stemming from a, a, the same root or whatever, the way that we have mendacity in English and, and French malteur uh, to mean liar, um, that kind of stuff I think is 
so fascinating and yeah, it sort of feels like I'm putting little Easter eggs in sometimes, uh, in using one word over another. Um, well, it was just, it was just clear to me that, um, Daphne is someone who's really interested in language, uh, and, and because I am too, I was just like, well, let's, let's explore what's possible here. And I wonder what the process of, of working together um, like that is on. You know, Daphne, did you read bits and pieces as Alex was working on it? And did you have like final say? Were there certain word choices where you're like, no, Alex, this is not it. And or yes, this keep pushing. Like, how was that? Was it a constant back and forth? Or did you kind of get a final manuscript from Alex that you then looked over? Uh, what was that process like? I would say it was a constant back and forth, <laughs> and uh, I was lucky to be to have this close relationship with Alex. And I hope they don't think I was too controlling and and, and such. But uh, listeners, they're shaking their head, <laughs> furiously shaking their head. <laughs> Daphne I is mean, not controlling. Confirmed. <laughs> well, I mean, as like a translator and a writer, maybe sometimes you get like very possessive of your own words and style. And I think there's a process when you are the person being translated where you have to kind of like let go a bit. So for me too, it was kind of a, you know, a process of learning, <laughs> but it was a great experience. We were talking about, you know, uh, just keeping the words proche and prochain in French, which I find like very nice because in a sense, we're like keeping a part of the strangeness of the text or like it's alterité in French, we would say, which is like, if it's like for me it's the best thing to do because it it remains a f text that was first written in French and I feel like we need to feel it too um, whereas I also adapted my text for the French public in France and that was a very traumatizing experience because all of this strangeness or difference which is uh, you know locating the text in my context my age my gender and the city I lived in was practically erased like they asked me to adapt culturally every references which I found very traumatizing <laughs> yeah so that was just like a comment <laughs> of course that makes so much sense that's why I think the work of a translator is so delicate <laughs> um because if, if there's really a work of preservation going on um, while yeah. a work of, of changing, I, I want to talk about that later, too. On page 54, Daphne writes, the savvy businesswoman knows that there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. But above all, she knows that it's possible to monetize that crack by generating a little bit of authenticity. That's strange. And oh, how lucrative alchemy. I both want an expansion on what's being said here, like if you could elaborate conceptually, but I also have a formal question. So it's, it's really a question for both of you in terms of where the choice to phrase, oh, how lucrative um, came about, because it's, a, it's sort of spelt with the old English form. The O is, is literal O, um, and that seems like a very specific translation choice. So um, maybe, Daphne, if you could start on explaining what is being said here uh, conceptually. So basically, I think that vulnerability is is um, is a tool. Sometimes it's many things. It's not one thing, but it's a tool that we are are using uh, to connect with each other, uh, to to feel like you know we're not that different 
we're all human and we can suffer and we have uh, disease or whatever. And it's especially relevant in YouTube and with influencers. Uh, so the the, um, the idea is to create some kind of parasocial relationship where you feel close and to feel that that closeness, um, sometimes they will, you know, talk about things that we consider intimate, like uh, their burnouts or uh, their social anxiety, and they will confide into us as if we were friends. And that creates a sense of closeness. So uh, in that case, vulnerability that is displayed becomes a tool, uh, a tool to create a connection. And that connection can be monetized. Yeah. So, oh, oh, how lucrative uh, is is actually a pretty direct sort of translation, not just of the meaning, but of the tone. Uh, there, there is like a bit of um, uh, uh, and that was one of the things that was fun for me about this book was that Daphne is sort of um, a tonal polyglot at times, you know, and the, the text sort of sometimes moves you know, from from a very poetic tone to an almost academic tone. Uh, and, and she'll dip into for, you know, one sentence here or there, um, uh, a sort of an old, you know, an old fashioned kind of tone um, like this. And so I was like, how, you know, I, I wanted to really retain that, um, that flexibility, because I think, you know, she's a poet, I'm a poet. And I think, you know, that uh, to smooth over that would, would, you know, remove something from the text. Um, but specifically to the spelling of, of O versus OH, uh, that has actually been changed since, um, as, as the editor, uh, as the publisher of Coach House pointed out to me, that's in fact, uh, there's a specific context for using just the O, which is when you're addressing, uh, a person and it's, it's sort of, it looks old fashioned, but in fact, I was using it wrong. Uh, and so I, I bid farewell to it. Uh, there's wow. now an H at the end of <laughs> at the end of the word. Uh, but I think I think it still. Gives... I love this behind the scenes gossip. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I didn't either. So we all we, we learned something. But I still think, uh, yeah, it gives it does give a little bit of that kind of uh, that old timey flavor. Um, but now without the grammatical uh, error <laughs> or the, the misuse of it. There's a lot of guilt in this book, <laughs> and I think that's normal for any discourse that tries to take something viewed as disempowering and tries to reorient the lens to see it as empowering. It's inevitable. Um, you know, Daphne, you seem to be really interested in justifying the things that give you pleasure, as, you know, one should be able to do. Um, and I think the reason this book is so uh, so of the moment is because this is a specific feeling our, our contemporary culture as a whole is... Um, you know, negotiating uh, in a particularly heightened way as of late, be it about beauty or among other things. On page 53, who has not asked himself at some time or other, am I a monster or is this what it means to be a person? I want to ask you both, is writing and translating this book an experience of calling yourself out? And if so, is that a process you recommend to others? <laughs> Um, well, in the beginning of the book, uh, I quote a writer, a Quebecois writer, uh, Nicolas Dawson, and he says something like, um, there is, uh, shame is okay if it moves you or transform you or something like that. And I've written in the past about shame, and I think it's a very difficult emotion to feel, but I think that we should write more about it and uh, try to 
I don't know. There might maybe like ways of experiencing it. <laughs> um, I don't think though that I'm trying in my book to, you know, present makeup as something empowering. I just feel like it's a complex object and insert that object in a capitalist frame. It's going to become capitalist right. as anything else like books, for example. Right. And I, I think that the, the main metaphor of the text is uh, shmoney, which is or uh, something that could be good or bad. In, in fact, there, it's not the point to show whether something is good or bad. Mm -hmm. Is to, to show maybe that we are always in contradiction uh, right now, like if we live in a rage. That That's my main point. <laughs> But that um, makes a lot yeah. of people uncomfortable. And I mean, even in the tone in the book is, I do think that it still reads as someone who's trying to navigate guilt that, again, may or may not be deserved. It's not about whether or not it is deserved. It's this... It, it, it's this person who understands the consequences of their actions or is thinking that far ahead. And they're not always the happy, warm feelings, especially when you're thinking about capitalism, when you're really thinking, we could all do this. It's not limited to makeup. If we look back and reflect right. on how we live our lives, the choices we make, what it ultimately means, um, which, you know, there's an argument to do that because we should all have some accountability and sense of awareness of how we live our lives. But then there's also an argument of it being kind of exhausting and depressing to constantly think that way. Um, but it's really interesting to, to hear you clarify that you don't think of it necessarily as trying to convert into a, an empowering argument. But I guess that's where this question was coming from. It, it really reads like a person who's interrogating themselves, which is maybe mm -hmm. what I meant by calling yourself out. Um, and in a way that a lot of people may no, probably finds very uncomfortable to do uh, in a very kind of direct way. Alex, I don't know if, if, if you agree with that sentiment or, or uh, disagree in your own ways. Um, no, that's fair. Uh, one of the, the discussions that Daphne and I had before I signed on was that I'm someone who's kind of coming to this book from, uh, you know, not... I guess, I guess sort of at an angle, I guess, uh, from beauty culture, which is to say that I'm not, you know... Uh, I was going to say like outside of it, but I was like, no one's outside of it. It's sort of the way no one's outside of capitalism. Um, but that I'm not someone who has historically been as familiar with, you know, a lot of the ins and outs. Um, and, you know, that my relationship to makeup is one that I feel like a, you know, a novice um, that, you know, I was sort of raised and socialized as, as a straight man Um And, and those things were kind of really off limits to me from that perspective. Um, and I'm only sort of now really getting into, you know, wearing uh, nail polish or eyeliner, stuff like that. Uh, and it's very exciting for me, but I definitely don't feel like I'm yet at a point where uh, I'm, I'm sort of having the same thoughts, I guess, that Daphne is really exploring in this book where she's sort of like, I'm, I'm so deep in this world that now it's important for me to really kind of consider the implications of it all and problematize some of the things that, you know, uh, she takes for granted and, and so many other people do. Um, you know, and I think one of the reasons that I was excited to, to sort of work on the book um, was that so much of what she was saying really rang true to me in terms of there's this kind of tension between this desire to be beautiful and to pursue aesthetically pleasing, 
you know, an aesthetically pleasing selfhood and the ways in which capitalism functions to sort of, uh, you know, produce bad outcomes, I guess, you know, by, by sort of, you know, making people work in unsafe conditions to produce this, you know, this makeup or, or mine sort of minerals for the makeup and, um, you know, just sort of selling an unrealistic uh, vision of, of sort of the body and whatnot to women in order to, you know, sell magazines and this and that. Um, but it was, I don't know, it is, it is, a, uh, a, I think, a kind of beautiful expression of all that complexity of that sort of moral complexity and intellectual complexity. Um, I don't know. And I'm excited for people to go on it. <laughs> I want to add something because capitalism is, you know, at the core of the book, like you both said, but I also, and also like the fact of like questioning your myself and, and that's really important. I think that we should never stop doing it. But uh, the the uh, the goal also behind Maquier it was to take this subject matter that we consider superficial and not serious and use it as a tool of knowledge to you know investigate the world we live in. So it could be identity, it could be social media, economics, whatever. But to to tell you know the world that yeah, makeup can be serious and important and can be, you know, <laughs> a, a tool to think about the world we live in. Yeah. You kind of already touched on this, Alex, earlier, but in it was it's like a, also what a question I had. Um, you know, in this book, someone who identifies as a woman tries to parse out her personal relationship to beauty, specifically with makeup in mind. And Alex, as you yeah. point out, you grew up with a different socialization than Daphne, different experiences. You know, there are going to be certain things that may or may not um, hit you in the same way. You know, I'm thinking specifically closer to a line closer to the end of the book to reduce makeup to the level of a pumpkin spice latte to spit on the whole cultural practice of it as if makeup alone summed up the, the failures of our entire civilization is a subtle means of gendering it. For me, as someone who identifies as a woman, reading the sentence hits me like right in the gut. I feel exactly what is being said there in a very specific way, I, I think. But I also want to think about how it can have that same effect outside of my own subjectivity, aka your experience, Alex. And, and the greater question here is, and I guess you could ask this question about translator works in general, but I'm really sp thinking of the specific context between you two in this book. Is there a way that this translated book isn't just a translated book, but is actually sort of like an enhanced version with like your own subjectivity seeping through it? Is it, is it kind of like Mackie 2.0, you know what I mean? Instead of made up, I, I, I was wondering about that. That is a fascinating question. I think, um, I mean, hold on. Let me let me wrap my head around this. No, I I, I mean I think to some degree every translator uh, brings aspects of their selfhood to a book, and you know uh, the the ways in which sort of the translator and the author differ, you know, may produce interesting or may not produce interesting results depending on what the translator is trying to do, and I guess like how close you know, their subjectivity is to the authors in terms of a number of different things like gender or class or, you know, even just like when they're translating from like, you know, all the time, uh, you know, like the classic works of literature or whatever translated by someone a hundred years ago versus like translated by someone today, you're going to get radically different results. So I, I think 
whatever I have brought to the text, you know, sometimes intentionally, sometimes probably not, is just a f- more a function of the fact that no literary translation is um, an objective process, and that sort of, you know, the person, the the personhood of the translator will, you know, affect the ch- the choices that are made. Um, and Daphne, you know. Uh, was super kind and helpful in terms of giving me feedback on the work, but she was also very kind of, there were moments where I made choices that she, you know, wouldn't have made or whatever, where she, she let me kind of run with it. Uh, and I really appreciated that. And I, I got the sense that I was getting lucky a little bit because she had been on the other end of that. And so she, she as a translator herself, she had been, you know, making choices and, and working with authors who had their own opinions or whatever. Um, and so I think, yeah, it was definitely, uh, if it was a really pleasant and positive first sort of translation experience. Uh, and I feel really grateful that she she saw what she saw, I guess, in my initial kind of, uh, work and, and liked it enough to want to, to want to see more. I think it's a very good translation. And yes, there is, you know, there is another dimension added. There's footnotes too, that were not there, uh, in the original books, uh, book. Um, I'm thinking about footnotes that are not, you know, in the ARCs, but um, about in the mines. You know, I, at one point in the book, I talk about my great-granddad dying in a mine. Because, okay, so back in the days in the factories, uh, the usually the owners were Anglophones and the workers were Francophones, but they would, you know, not speak English necessarily, but they would... Um, grab on some, you know, English expression or terms and they would use them, uh, use these words uh, in their Quebecois slang. And I think we kept that and there's a note explaining that and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really, there's a fascinating, uh, that's a really fascinating example because that was an area where I sort of stumbled a little bit in my initial translation when I first sent it to Daphne she was sort of like uh no that's actually not what I was doing um because the word that's used in the original is uh, chiffre which is uh, the French word for for number uh and I was sort of puzzling over it like you know um she they, it says like the le chiffre de de cette heure, like and I was like the number of seven so maybe that means like seven exactly on the dot you know like the stroke of of seven or whatever and uh, she's like no it's a it's a it's a, a sort of a, a gallicization of of the word shift it's the shift of seven o'clock but but because the word shift and and the French word chiffre are are sort of tonally similar um, they just kind of adopted it uh, and so we kept. The, I think we kept the chiffre, um, but then we added a translator's note to sort of explain some of the ways that this, you know, English words found their way into uh, kind of like the, the words that the bosses were using seeped into the, the French of the, um, the workers, which I thought was really, yeah, just interesting. On page 51 in the English translation, again, in my copy, uh, a parallel is made between the 10 seconds it takes to make Kylie Jenner a billionaire and a similarly fleeting transitory moment like a meteor striking across the sky above L.A. This made me think about beauty and permanence. 
every color we put on our body is inevitably wiped off. In fact, part of the fun is knowing that you can erase it. Mm-hmm. This also makes me think of waste. Uh, but unlike everything in this height of climate change, it doesn't feel wasteful. It doesn't feel wasteful, does it? I don't think so. I know you both, you know, explore physical beauty. Like, I know you guys both explore makeup. Um, so could you talk to me about that a little bit? This idea of wastefulness in our capitalist society um, and, and, and the fact that we choose it every day. <laughs> and not in the same way that we would choose to, like, pollute <laughs> every day. You mean to put on colors on her body and wipe them off after? Just we're, we're okay with this idea of impermanence. It's part of the fun of getting dressed up and putting on makeup. Mm, But again, yeah. if you put your capitalist lens on it, which, you know, is what this book does, the idea of impermanence is actually, you know, very problematic in a lot of ways. And I'm specifically thinking about climate change. So sort of I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how to negotiate impermanence in both contexts, if that makes sense. Yeah, I never thought of like, you know, color makeup as you, you, the, the color as being a waste, but it makes sense. Um, I'm always more thinking about, you know, the packaging and, the, and especially in makeup because it usually mixes many materials. Right. So it makes it hard to recycle. Right. Um, because I'm, you know, we're used to eat a lot of things or like, you know, vitamins. I have my antidepressant and ultimately, you know, whatever I consume, I pee or I poo. So I'm also wasting, you know, everything I <laughs> put on me or inside me right, right, uh, right. will leave my body at one point. So yeah, I never thought of colors in that way, but I guess Yeah, it makes sense. It goes in the waters and in the pipes. Um, it's wasteful. <laughs> But it's not, is my argument. Know. Because and, and, and yeah. if it can be read as both disempowering and empowering based on the lens, the, 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 the lens in which it's empowering is the part in which it makes me feel wonderful, you know, today, or beautiful, or attractive, mm. or confident. These are not, like, these yeah. are not wasteful feelings i mean the you, makeup was used in the past like in pre, you know very like back in the days not necessarily to feel beautiful but also to you know uh, convoke evoke a notion of the sacred and you know um and i think that you know you can find a lot of colors in nature and it seems like a trend right now <laughs> like i see a lot of people uh, with like plants and tinctures and stuff like that uh and we used to use like you, you know the dirt to modify our features mm -hmm. so i don't think i mean right now in this in a capitalist society it's very hard for me to think of an object without thinking about the waste and all the you know uh the system in which it's, you know, it lives, but I don't think it's essentially wasteful to use color to adorn our bodies. Right. Um, and I think that the self or the, our identity is something that is shifting also. So it's normal that we reflect those shifts uh, either in the way we dress or the way we put on makeup right. uh, or different ways. Yeah, I think... The, the bringing up the dress is a really useful comparison. It's sort of like 
the fast fashion industry or, or you know, the, 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 the prevalence of fast fashion is not good for the environment. Um, and just sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of capitalistically problematic sort of things going on when we consider it from that angle. But the concept of wearing clothes and owning clothes and buying clothes uh, in and of itself is not bad. It's just sort of like, how can we find a way to do this in a, in a way that's sustainable? And because of the way capitalism works, that's, you know, there's not that interest in necessarily seeking out sort of sustainable modes of production or whatnot. But I think, uh, I mean, sort of, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword, I guess, but Daphne gets into this sort of, uh, at some point in the book, talking about, um, sort of capitalism's flexibility and its ability to kind of bring us sort of new products uh, as our desires sort of shift. So I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of in the next few years, if it hasn't already started becoming a thing where people are like, well, this makeup is more sustainable and this packaging is more sustainable, you know, and I'm going to go to of a... Of course, it's yeah. goop. <laughs> I'm going to go to a store where... It's already there. Yeah, exactly. So Like goop. <laughs> I don't know if they're doing it well, but it's certainly they're like branding. Um, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's better that... Alex talks about fast fashion and there's the same kind of like fast fashion and makeup, mm -hmm. uh, like Colourpop mm -hmm. who uh, releases new makeup every every week, new collection. So it's definitely a thing. And, and there's higher end company that will, you know, sell very expensive things, but you're, you can recycle the component and just, you know, add whatever you're you're buying in inside the packaging and reuse it and there's all these things yeah to your point about the impermanence though uh the impermanence of it on our bodies that's definitely something that like as a sort of beginner makeup wearer for me like the the sort of taking it off feels almost like sort of sacrilegious so like whenever I sort of paint my nails I just like let them chip away slowly over the course of weeks and I'm like I'm not gonna, like I have make uh, like nail polish remover but I'm like I can't I can't do it I'm just gonna keep you know keep them to the very end and then put on an, uh, a new color or whatever because um, it's just sort of like oh finally like I have some you know <laughs> like I'm not gonna take it off that's crazy mm -hmm. <sighs> I'm sure I'll get there eventually but uh It's definitely fascinating because I know that's that's non-traditional uh, as far as a relationship to nail polish. There's something I enjoy about the impermanence of makeup and the process of washing away, you know, the makeup of the day. It's kind of a ritual and it makes me think of like, okay, it's the end of my day. And and I think I talk about it in the book that it also is like kind of a process of like saying goodbye to something and as mm -hmm. in like... It's kind of far-fetched, but like kind of dying or just like losing something. And it's a process that we keep doing over and over until we are the one, you know, leaving the planet. And I think this it's, a, it's very good to, um, you know, uh, feel closer or think about death more often and just like accept death as an idea in our life. And maybe you know, the rush to buy a lot of things is in a way uh, uh, like to prevent us thinking about death. I think that uh, I'm trying more and more <laughs> to accept death in my life. I love the impermanence of it too, <laughs> just because, I mean, I think it's, I think it's because I'm a Libra. I think everything's because I'm a Libra. But I like the idea that I don't have to um, 
I'm not committed. Like I can be this today. Right. This is what I want today. And it's not a tattoo. I don't have to like, you know, really, really think about this being me for the rest of my life. I can, like you said, go through that ritual of just like taking it all off and tomorrow who will I be or what will make me feel good is a better, a better way of putting it. I think, um, is the value in it for me. Um, on page 56, Daphne writes, I'm here, I'm buying, I'm here because the spectacle of it all is so real. And again, I've been talking a lot about how this book is a person in conversation with themselves about capitalism, so also about morality. Um, and I find, you know, this sentence comes to some sort of confirmation, if not consensus, that I, you know, I don't really know how to solve the world's problems, but I'm here, I'm buying, I'm here because the spectacle of it all of it all is so real. So it must be real that I'm here. There's a question here that made me wonder, does our existence need to be morally prescribed in order to count as real or not real? Uh, morally prescribed? I feel like I'm, I'm not like at the end, this quote can be read as, you know, uh, ironic or, right. but I'm very sincere, which is like, The, that just makes it even more ironic is, sometimes. What is not expected. <laughs> like, I really believe that the spectacle is real. I just, I tweeted a quote. Like, I found a quote yesterday by Anna Arant. It says, sorry, I will read it. Uh, appearance, something that is being seen and heard by others as well as by yourself, constitutes reality. And that's one of the idea I push in the book <laughs> uh, because we, we, we have this whole like anxiety about what is real and what is not. And I feel like what we show to the world, even if it's stage is real. <laughs> and so I don't say that in an ironic or judgmental tone. I'm really here because I believe <laughs> I, when I watch a YouTuber, I have emotion, I have feelings Uh, and I root for them. Yeah. It, it's Tell me more. What do you mean you root for them? <laughs> Sometimes I like, like during the pandemic or like lately I've been watching, of course, makeup, you know, makeup YouTube, but I've been watching a lot of, uh, for some reason, young women with cancer and I follow their day, their vlogs. And I think about them. I write to them. I, you know, I just, I just feel like there is, uh, for me at least, I mean, even if it's one directional, there is a, a true relationship because they are part of me and I have them in my head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I care about them, mm -hmm. which is weird. No, no, um, I don't think it's weird. I think it's real. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's sort of this question of, of again, this, this narrator who, who's walking through life and, and saying, I'm doing this and what does that mean? And I guess that's not great when I do that thing and it, That it means that that thing yeah. is happening in the world. Um, and this sentence to me sort of came to this point where I was like, you know, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's definitely happening. It's definitely here. Right. And it's definitely happening. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I just wanted to know if maybe I misread that or if that is the reading to take from that. No, that's good because I feel like never in the book or in my writing, I try to say, you know, this is, well, I guess, yes, like... Uh, I feel like what one thing that I say is that the accumu accumulation of wealth is bad because it 
it, it's violent. Uh, but I don't try to say, say like, this is bad, this is good. Uh, I, I also, I, I feel like I'm trying to, to read things in a more complex ways, as in like, it's very hard to say when it's good or bad. Right. And maybe it's impossible. Yeah, one of the things that I feel like, one of the kind of moral threads that I sort of found winding its way through the book uh, is... I think this sort of pushback, I guess, um, against what I sort of think of as the kind of personal carbon footprint discourse kind of thing, where it's like it's in the big companies sort of interests for everyone to be thinking sort of about the morality of their actions in very granular ways, as opposed to thinking about a kind of wider structural context. So, you know, it's very easy to say like, oh, you're a bad person because you bought three things of makeup and like look at the wastefulness of that or whatever you know without thinking about like well why is it that you know this makeup is wasteful you know at all and 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 stuff like that so i think yeah to daphne's point i think she's sort of trying to at least the impression i got is that there's an attempt to kind of render the actions of of just people you know with some complexity and to to render sort of what is occurring at a kind of systematic kind of powerful level um, in a bit more black and white terms. Thank you both. That was it. This was it. That was great. Um, no, it's silver. <laughs> That's the best reaction I've ever seen. What? <laughs> is that okay that it's over? <laughs> um, I will add a note. Uh, you know, St. Henry customers, you can pick up a copy of uh, Made Up on the Weird Era shelf. Um, and Mekier, we we stock them both uh, so nice. for whatever you're so inclined. And thank you both for doing this with me. I'm so sorry. It's yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're yeah. bilingual, buy a copy of each. <laughs> Read them simultaneously. Compare them. <laughs> Compare them.